thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm glad you've joined me. And I apologize if the sound today is a little bit tinny, but because of the weather and the ice and the snow, I wasn't able to get to the office for my microphone. I didn't anticipate bringing it with me on Friday, so we're having to work with the built-in microphone today. But hopefully, uh, you'll begin to adjust to the difference in sound, and we'll be able to move right on through. So what I want to do today is build on my podcast from over the last month to look at the dominion mandate in Genesis one twenty-eight, where we read that God, quote, blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So specifically, I want to take this week and next week to look at the dominion mandate and share some thoughts on how I think we should pursue that. But to keep it from becoming abstract or theoretical, I want to do it in the context of the abortion issue I've been speaking about for the last several weeks. And uh, next week, I'll carry today's thoughts over to a legislative proposal that's before the Tennessee legislature that would recover the creational law of marriage as the relationship between a man and a woman and only a man and a woman. And I think the contrast in the way Christians have considered these bills, or actually in the case of the marriage bill, dismissed it out of hand, may be instructive to us as to the state of things in the church and how that condition in the church should inform the way we consider going about the dominion mandate. Now, for those who listened to my podcast in December, I had about four or five, even going into early January, but particularly the one last week, you'll know a certain legislative proposal regarding abortion has shown a division among Christians. Um, I'm not talking about division among people who look like they're Christians or whatever, but that we would no doubt say they they. they understand that that uh, they are sinners in the sight of God. They are under the law of sin and death, and the only hope for them to escape the just penalty of the law of sin and death is in Jesus Christ, and that's the only way toward sanctification. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to say there's a division even within that carefully defined group of people. And, and that legislation says that a pregnant woman who authorizes a physician to perform an abortion or somehow does it herself commits a capital offense and gets the death penalty. And I said last week, there are several things I think Christians need to think through. And, and actually, uh, I've mentioned them over the course of several weeks. Before we decide how to vote on a bill like that or support a bill like that, and and I appreciated some of the comments and questions I got back from a couple of listeners, Um, I appreciated that they were trying to think through what I said 
in relation to other passages of scripture that than the ones that I mentioned. So that that's exactly what I hope to do. If you'll recall, I began several episodes with the invitation that was made in the end abortion videos for the church to come together and and think through consistencies and inconsistencies in in what we're doing. And that's what I've tried to do. And I appreciate those listeners who tried to do that. But one thing that I think is important to keep in mind that I never appreciated until I was in the legislature, and perhaps many listeners don't because they haven't been in the legislator's shoes, and that's the political environment may be the absolute worst place to think through anything. In Tennessee, at least, uh, that's true. Today, our committee chairs have little patience with discussion of any depth. You get five minutes to speak in the House, in a committee, on your own bill. And, and if you're a lobbyist like me, you get three minutes. And now they may ask questions for some period of time, but you don't get much time to explain anything and the thoughts behind what you're doing. And um, that has to be appreciated. Um, and, and politics can also put you in a position in which it becomes impossible to say, I just don't know yet, which is what I was trying to say last week, that with what the information I now have, in light of what I think is out there, I, I just don't know yet what the right thing is. And, and it's hard to do that in politics without somebody branding you something derogatory, whichever way they happen to be on that issue, and, or, or, or worse, um, having them assume something sinister behind an expression of honest uncertainty and, and what having a clean conscience before God requires for an individual before he or she puts a new law on millions of people. There probably aren't many who listen to this podcast who've pushed a light on the General Assembly floor and known that they were affecting, in Tennessee, six or seven, maybe now eight million people or more. And it's one thing to make a decision for your family. It's another thing to make a decision at work. But to make a decision for six or seven or eight or more million people, well, it's a it's an awesome and fearful place to be. And, um, and, and sometimes the people that are supposed to be full of grace actually demonstrate none. And, and look, I'm, I'm guilty. Uh, you can go ask some of my colleagues I served with. I'm guilty. I mean, I've been one of those ungracious persons with my legislative colleagues when they just couldn't seem to get what I was saying, especially after I'd tried multiple times. I would get frustrated that it just wouldn't click, that they would still be asking the same questions over and over. And as you can see, it, it's still sort of irritating or I wouldn't have gone on about it. But uh, you know, if you've ever had a teenager and you've tried to explain why they can't go to the prom or drive the car or whatever else it is, you can imagine in this kind of crucible and pressure cooker, um, maybe why, why uh, ungrace would come to the surface. And I've done the same thing as a lobbyist. I mean, as a lobbyist, you can run into people who, um, you know, legislators who, who shouldn't be on the board of directors of the local YMCA or or anything else for that matter, uh, but also people who don't have an appropriate background 
for the work you're doing or what you're trying to explain. And then you run into some people that think they know everything when you know good and well they don't. I mean, it, yeah, I've, I've been ungracious. So, look, uh, I, I, I get it. But we need to appreciate that things are not easy in the political process. And as much as I hate to say it, after 29 years, I, I increasingly loathe the political process for those very reasons. And um, it's, it's easy to think that things are pretty black and white when you're not sitting there trying to convince 17 out of 33 colleagues to go along with you on something, and then you've got 50 out of 99 House members that need to go along with you at the same time. So it can make church disputes among the deacons or elders look uh, small in comparison. And another thing I just point out, sometimes a legislator must move the civil law along over time. I mean, consider how Wilberforce handled the issue of slavery. Abolition was done in stages, though in each stage, it, it was grounded on the same fundamental principle, but it didn't all happen in one fell swoop. I mean, that's what I was talking about several weeks ago when I said I wanted to first attack the, the doctors who perform abortions and not get into the issue of the woman who, who authorizes it. Uh, I, I thought I could take one evil at a time. And uh, if I could address the one evil, it might help address the second evil. But for some people, as you'll recall, I said, no, you have to address every evil associated with the issue all at the same time, or it's not good. It's not right. It's not just. It's whatever it is. And, uh, you know, it's a hard place to be in, hard place to be in. So um, anyway, I, I thought I would point that out. Sometimes you try and you fail. Uh, I've been doing that now for uh, eight years on the marriage issue. I'll talk about that next week. I failed it every time, and um, there seems to be actually no interest in it at, at recovering marriage at all by anybody. Even the people that care greatly about this issue, they don't seem to care about marriage, right? But they don't appreciate that the issue of life flows from the marital relationship and God's cosmology, and out of that flows parental rights, and, and even the homeschool community doesn't care about why they're losing their parental rights because we've lost what marriage is. Well, anyway, I don't want to get into next week's episode, but uh, anyway, we've just have a collapse on this issue of marriage that's astonishing and colossal. So, but, but development of law over time was the whole conception of common law that those of you who are my listeners know I talk a lot about. And, and for example, I look back now and I wonder why the presumption of innocence in a criminal trial is really a, a relatively modern development in the common law. It wasn't until the 1600s, but it just seems so right to us. Now we, we, we can't imagine that at one point that didn't exist, right? So like sanctification in our persons, uh, you might say sanctification of the law can sometimes be a process. And I, I think it was actually Matthew Hale who said the common law works itself pure. And they believe that because God is at work in and among his people in its development of the law. Now, 
In, in regard to this idea of the development of the law, the, the collapse of the law, one thing Rusus Rushduni wrote in his Institute of Biblical Law that I think pertains to how we go about the dominion mandate in our current cultural and legal circumstances is this. Um, it's on page 237 of the book if you have it. The law breaks down when the faith behind the law breaks down. So, if we want to look to Scripture for guidance, he gives us a situation, and it's that in which Jesus was confronted by the scribes and Pharisees over a woman who had been caught in adultery, which, under the law of Moses, was a capital offense. The death penalty was required. And Rushdie made an interesting observation about that situation that, to me, indicates that as he said, the faith, the, the premise and predicate for the offense of adultery and the capital sanction had broken down in Jesus' day. And, and I'll just say, if that was true then of Israel, with the background and the privileges they had, well, it's far more true in our country and in every regard, from what it means to be human to what law is, to what the function of civil government is, none of our foundations for any of those three things consciously remains in the minds of our people. And rarely do they even surface among our legislators and, and Christian legislators and Christian politicians and Christian um, legal advocates. I mean, we don't have that even within our own community, right? So it's, it's terrible. And that's the playing field in which we are to pursue the dominion mandate. And we're going to look at the, the, the details of that mandate a little bit more next week. And this is important. The kinds of law the Bible speaks to and their relationship to that mandate. It'll probably be in two weeks, maybe not next week. But anyway, uh, just a heads up for what's coming. Let, let me move on now to Rush Dooney's observation about this situation. And we need to keep in mind that, in, that Jesus is being questioned about the law by the scribes, who were sometimes referred to as Jesus as the lawyers. Right? They were the lawyers of the day, the experts on the law of Moses. And he was being questioned by the Pharisees, who were punctilious about keeping that law in a very exacting detail. Right, And so here's what Rush Dooney writes. The death penalty had ceased to be enforced for adultery. So we know adultery under the Mosaic ordinances was a, a capital offense, just, just like murder. And Rushdunia continues, and the attempt to force a judgment from Jesus with respect to the woman taken in adultery was an attempt to embarrass him. If he denied the death penalty, his declaration that he came to fulfill the law would be challenged. If he affirmed the death penalty, he would affirm a highly unpopular position. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Jesus, in return, judged them. The lawless cannot enforce the law, and they were lawless. God must judge them, because society then did not. So, very, very interesting statement. And I hate to say this, and I pray I'm wrong, but I, I fear something similar may be going on here on this abortion issue. I mean, from what I've seen in these videos and the response to them by various people, there seems to be little in the way of a spirit desirous of discussing the whole of the Bible 
in relation to the things I've talked about over the course of multiple episodes. And I know that's not true of everybody. And it's not true of those who who email me this week. But I sense that is true of many. And I just have a feeling that for many, there's more interest in putting people that are not on their side and Christian legislators in the same kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't position the scribes and Pharisees tried to put Jesus in. I think sometimes there's more interest and more emphasis, I should say, on that than seeking to mature and grow the body of Christ that the kingdom might spread and come in a greater fullness. Now, in contrast to what appears to me is taking place, like I say, uh, I, I hope I'm wrong, and I know I'm wrong with respect to some people in both camps. But I want to pause to insert two clips from one of my favorite podcasts, Chalk Knox Unplugged. And, uh, and the first clip begins with Jason Farley making the observation that we're reaping what we've sown as a nation over the 90s. I would suggest longer than that. And, and then Jason is followed by Jock Knox saying something else. And, and then I'm going to go straight to the second clip of David because it fits with this first clip. And look, I take full responsibility for how I'm using these clips and how I think they apply. But I think they do. We're reaping what we've sowed um, in the 90s. And, and now we're, um, we've got a whole generation that that is, you know, is alienated, um, dislodged from reality. And, um, the, their existential experience, um, is, is that they're a ghost. Um, that there's a, a fundamental disconnect. Um, and you don't solve that problem by force. But there's no coercive power that you can apply to that existential problem. Yeah, but took, we can raise ahead. kids, right? We can raise kids. Yeah. I took I took a line from you. I think we were talking on the phone and, you know, we've been trying to really work through some of the Christian nationalism stuff. You know, the, the two different parties, there's, there's all sorts of different groups inside of there. So it's hard to talk about Christian nationalism without hitting one of your friendlies. Right. Like yeah. that's always a, the challenging part is that there's friendly guys that are in there that are part of the team that are taking the title. And then so when you go to kind of hit a group that's in there um, that has a certain sort of thinking, you end up hitting people that are your friends, too. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's kind of like it's not it's not it's just it's a mixed bag. And so you got to be careful. But one of the things that we were talking about, you had said it's really telling uh, because people think that they can just replace a system and get the fruit of repentance without repentance itself. Yeah. And that is exactly where we are, where we keep. And, and this is when you know you're dealing with idolatry, because when you have the curse of God on you, you try to do things like uh, Pharaoh did, where it's, well, I'll just pour my clear water and I'll get my priest to try and replace this. And and, and you keep on trying to work on a system where it's like, well, what we need is godly politicians in these positions. And it's like, well, not if they haven't repented, not if we have, we won't get godly politicians if we haven't repented. So yeah, right. you can, you can make all the laws you want and, and we should be engaging in this type of work, 
but not short of repentance and trusting in Christ. If you don't have those things established, you don't get you, you won't get anything changed. You won't um, you won't have any sort of victory here. And and it's coming more and more clear to me that I think we would like to do everything we can except real, true, godly repentance. And so I hear so much talk about the political outcomes of things without godly repentance. And this is why I really love Pastor Wilson, because he will go and just he'll preach that and say, like, you don't get you, you can call it whatever you want. But at the end of the day, if you don't have godly repentance, you don't get a Christian anything. Right. You don't get a Christian anything. So if that's not at the tip of the spear of what it is that you want to be done, then you can just give it up now because you're not going to you're not going to you're not going to change the system and get godliness out of it. You know, um, and, and and that's I don't hear that message. You know, and this is the, and part of the judgment. Part of the judgment is that you will have false prophets who do not speak for God, but. They, they will tell you all the things that you need to do to fix a problem, and they have nothing to do with repentance. I'll be honest. I don't see much of that repentance taking place in the Christian community on either side of the issue. And, and to be perfectly honest, speaking to my own need for repentance was at the heart of what I tried to say last week. I've been part of this pro-life community that's done some things not right for a long time. And I can't proceed to judge others till I have repented and cleared my conscience before God. But some people don't want to give you an opportunity to do that or say it without thinking the worst of you, you see. And, and, and that's why I ended last week with talking about the garden. And that we need to tend and keep the garden. Because we're full of sin and hypocrisy and misunderstanding and gotcha-ness and all kinds of other things as best I can see it. I'm just telling you what I see. And, uh, and that got swallowed up, I think, in the minds of some. In preference for the question, well, what does the law of Moses say? And that's what we got to do. Like I say, that's why I closed last week with saying the dominion mandate in Genesis 1 is set in the context of chapter 2 in which Adam is instructed to tend and cultivate the garden, the church. And it seems to me like some folks realize that we've been doing it wrong on abortion, and we have been doing it wrong. But I would submit this in some fundamental ways, not just related to how we've handled abortion over the last 50 years, but how we have looked at all of this for over a century. And that, that long-term sinning and rebellion against God is what has brought us to this place. But some seem to be like the Israelites who realized God was going to judge them for... for uh, not going into Canaan and taking it. And and they said, well, we sinned, you know, when they heard the, the judgment of God against them and they rushed in to do what they were supposed to have done, but God wasn't with them. And maybe, maybe their repentance was just too late. 
God had already decreed what was going to happen. And of course, uh, he had. <laughs> if we understand the divine decrees and we understand God dwells in eternity and we understand what the implications of that mean. Or maybe, you know, it could have been it was the kind of repentance that God knew uh, was, was of the type John Owen describes that leads just to moral reform. Hey, I'm in trouble with God, so let's repent and get out from under his judgment. A moralism, a moral reform, but not a heart reform. So that generation had to die off in the wilderness. They were not the kind of people who could exercise dominion. I'll close today with a couple of observations about Israel's wilderness wandering from that you may prosper. That in the context of the auto eclipse I just played, I think may be worthy of our consideration. And then next week, I'll point out how narrow our view of the law of God is in relation to civil law that, that to me demonstrates we have a lot of work to do in repairing the garden before we can even think about taming the wilderness. And I sure hope you'll join me for that because it's truly appalling. And there are none that I've seen on this side of this issue who are guiltless when it comes to marriage. I hope you'll join me for that. And now here's what Jordan wrote of the Israelites' wilderness experience. Jordan's writing in the context here of accountability. And I believe that sometimes we want to hold our politicians accountable and not hold ourselves accountable. We want them to fix what by our lack of right discipleship we've created. And here's what he says. Foreign powers were brought down on Israel. Until they repented, the message was, quote, paganism will dominate you when you rebel against the Lord's system of judgment. When Israel failed with the big enemy, Canaan, God withdrew them into a situation where they could practice before smaller enemies. The Lord riveted his point, as he often does in the Bible, through a series of instructive encounters. Some of the enemies God commanded Israel to pass by without conflict, as in the case of the sons of Esau, and others God told them to fight and destroy in the case of the Amorites. Why were they to fight some and not others? Well, that leads to the next point. Rebellion destroys unity among the brethren. When Israel learned not to fight with the ones closest to them, they became more unified. And when they quit fighting among themselves, they were ready to fight the real enemies, the Amorites, and even Canaan. His next point, marching comes before fighting. Israel wandered for 38 years. They had to learn to march in military order before they would be able to fight in harmony. God drilled them for three decades. When they showed enough accountability to walk in formation, they were ready to begin to fight. The people of God have to learn how to submit when they walk before they'll be able to run. And lastly, the ways of rebellion are removed slowly. God waited until the older rebellious generation died. This gave the younger generation an extended course in wilderness training. They had to submit to God and each other to survive. Individualists did not survive in the wilderness. Like Jesus in the wilderness, Israel was prepared for any challenge. 
If they could live in the wilderness, they could conquer in civilization. We just might need to learn those same lessons before we can conquer civilization. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.